On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we are talking about Hamilton's move to bring a movie production studio to the city. The city is buying more land to try and expedite this. Is it going to happen? Councillor Jason Farr will join us to talk about it. We're talking about the U.S. election, of course, as we wait to see what will happen and what effect it'll have on Canada and... We're talking about Christmas music. It has started. It's November the 5th, and the Christmas music has started too early or just right. We'll talk about it. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. If this was the normal Scott Thompson Show, right now you would be hearing the wildly enthusiastic voice of young Kurt Thompson introducing his father. That's not Scott Thompson is off today. Scott Radley sitting in for the other Scott on this Thursday. Glad you're here. Hey, thanks. Yes, always lovely. The Scott Thompson audience is always very appreciative. I always love that. A sitting ovation, but nonetheless, an ovation. We'll take it. Uh, glad you're here. Thanks for being along with us today on, get ready for this. This is So Hamilton on National Donut Day. Celebrate accordingly, although don't overdo it. Since very few of us are getting out and exercising anymore, you have to temper your donut intake. At least I do. Now, we've known about this for a while, the concept, and we've known that the city of Hamilton has been acquiring land to hopefully be able to combine, to partner with a studio to turn Hamilton into Hollywood-ish North. That's that's kind of the idea, that we're going to partner, the city's going to partner with a studio, and we're going to have hundreds of thousands of square feet of available space to allow for this city to be a place where we do, I mean, we've already got lots and lots of movie shoots that happen here, uh, but we're going to do more of that where we're going to attract presumably more people here, where we are going to become a center for production of movie and TV shows in a big, big way. Over the last number of months, the city has apparently spent an additional three and a half million to acquire some more land abutting the area that it already had grabbed, uh, that it already had bought up. Uh, 14 acres of city-owned land is what we're talking about in the Barton, Caroline, Tiffany, Hess area, Queen Street, all in that area um, is is where this is proposed to be. Now, of course, there is one little catch, and that's the catch with everything these days, COVID. We bring in Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who is uh, knows this very well because it's in his ward and he's been dealing with this for quite a number of months now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Thank you, Scott. Uh, it sounds like if we are still purchasing up more land, um, the, city is, the city is into this with both feet. This is something the city is really committed to seeing happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just uh, to be absolutely clear, we're not ourselves getting into the business. So it's not so much a partnership, but we've made available as a council, and uh, we continue to uh, work with uh, Aeon Productions, uh, a group of investors and uh, very knowledgeable film and TV production people, uh, to, to sell off that massive 14-acre parcel in the Barton Tiffany lands and ultimately be uh, part of a very you know, big industry, of a hugely growing industry of film and television production in Ontario and in Canada. It's like two point, I think it's two billion into Ontario's economy annually. It was up about 15% in, in, in uh, 2019 over 2018, 
There's over 7,500 jobs. So we're trying to get a big piece of that action. And obviously, by um, amending a bylaw about two years ago now, or a zoning bylaw, to allow that use in the Barton Tiffany lands that went without any appeal, uh, we, we took some ginormous steps towards making it a uh, reality and, and indeed being like a, a Hollywood North and getting a big piece of this, uh, uh, you know, burgeoning industry in Canada and in Ontario. What is there now? I, I haven't driven by in a little while. Uh, what is on that site right now? Is it open and just ready to go or does it require all kinds of remediation and teardowns and everything else? Well, for the most part, it's open. So the teardowns and the demolitions have occurred. For the most part, um, there's still a, a warehouse closer to, to Queen. Um, remediation, absolutely, that's a big part of this uh, deal. And uh, the Aeon uh, Film and Television Production uh, Consortia uh, continue to work on that. I mean, that, that would, that's a no surprise to, to anyone being a formal industrial, uh, formal I- industrial site, now zoned uh, commercial and uh, residential. So. That work uh, in, in the, the phasing of the environmental assessments and, and remediation work uh, continues, and that's a, that's a big job, no doubt about it. But you know what? When you're looking at 14 acres and a good chunk of that parcel being, you know, production side of things or, or a commercial production side of things, there's an ability, and I said this years ago, instead of parceling off that land after the defunct uh, stadium location debate, and it obviously didn't go there. Um, when you sell to one group, uh, there's an ability, the, the big cost in remediation and making land clean is moving it off the land and putting it somewhere else. When you have the ability to utilize a massive space, you work with the Ministry of the Environment and you can actually move all the, uh, let's call it toxic uh, uh, underground, into one section cap it and there are certain uses you can put on top certainly not residential but maybe warehousing and that sort of thing so there's that ability to move it on site uh very much mitigate your costs and have a use that uh over a capping that uh that that really helps in the in the remediation process and that's what they could do here now whether they do that or not uh they're, they're not at that stage yet to my understanding I am unclear at this point on the the how solid the deal is on this one. Is this still in discussion terms or dis- the discussion phase with the studio people and the people behind this, or have we locked in something that they are buying this land right now? Where where is that? Well, they haven't bought the land yet, but they're they're locked into doing the deal on the land on all fourteen acres, including the additional. Uh, uh, Stelco, former Stelco uh, lands that we've recently purchased. And, you know, we've been consolidating down there uh, properties and growing that acreage uh, uh, and making it one very valuable piece of uh, waterfront uh, development lands uh, for many, many years. And that was just the latest piece. But no, there's no real timeline on that negotiation, but there is a, a council mandate to negotiate with AEON to bring the film and television production, and, and that work continues. Absolutely, Scott, you referenced it. Like everything else, there was a bit of a slowdown uh, during COVID-19, but, you know, for those folks who pay for, you know, those streaming services, whether it's Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, or whatever it is, you can see that film and television production is back. New programs are coming. You read about new uh, you know, seasons being filmed, and, and uh, movies are, are getting back in business, learning to work 
uh, with the social distancing and all those necessary, uh, you know, policies around uh, COVID-19 while we have COVID-19. And so it's starting to pick up again in a very big way. And so, uh, you know, these are, you know, these, these are things that we know um, are going to continue to improve. And then ultimately, following a vaccine, we think we're going to get back on track, not only in Ontario, but across this nation into the multi, multi-billion dollar industry of film and TV production that we have here. It's, it's really something that's growing exponentially year after year. And, you know, I think council looked at that when we said, let's do this exclusive deal but that exclusive deal just isn't done just yet. No, I, I, I'm assuming that. I mean, this would not this this studio production center, whatever else, would not just be for projects that would be filmed in Hamilton. They could be filming elsewhere and doing the post production here. But is the hope in your mind that if you put this here, not only would we have that, but we would greatly expand the number of projects being filmed in the city? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we have over 800, uh, I think it was last year that we had over 800 film and television productions just out on our streets in remote, you know, uh, neighborhood locations, uh, uh, you know, valleys and, uh, you know, downtowns and, and uh, rural areas. And so it's, it's a very big industry already in Hamilton that contributes, I think it's 24, 25 million annually. Don't quote me on that, but it puts a lot of money back into our economy. And we, we're well known as welcoming the uh, film and TV industry. So now you have that post-production opportunity. You have a multifaceted, uh, you know, um, all-purpose 14-acre site that does production, post-production, in-studio, out-of-studio work. A really good example, actually, is the record-breaking, and I know you talked about it in your evening show, uh, Shit's Creek. That's a Canadian production. It broke the records on Emmys. It shoots remotely. It shoots in, I believe, a Mississauga or Toronto studio. It's a, it was a massive, massive hit before they decided to, to walk away after, I think it was eight seasons. But you get just one of those productions, and you're bringing hundreds and hundreds of drops to a community. And, and there's, there's filming you can do both internally within the site uh, and the post-production and all of that as well. Uh, but also, obviously, we have that welcoming remote shoot locational uh, uh, aspect that uh, we're well known for in Hamilton, too. So the two work very well together. I, I Obviously, the benefits of more shoots in the city are obvious. Uh, you just outlined them. What about the idea? I mean, there are people who say we don't we don't need more streets shut down. We don't need more things like this. There's always going to be the critics. There's always going to be those who say no. I don't really like it. What do you say when when those criticisms come up that say you know these things do block streets? And they, I remember when the Incredible Hulk thing was being shot. I mean, it was a it it was a blockage. Is the benefit just so overwhelming that we just have to block those out? You know what? I'm gonna say, I gotta be totally honest. Like when you get the major productions, you're more likely to get some backlash when they're shooting in neighborhoods or closing. You know, major commercial arteries. Right now, we have a, a Disney production happening in International Village. Uh, it, the trick is to do a lot of communication ahead of time. Is everyone happy after? I believe it's about three weeks now with this Disney production and, and different sorts of shutdowns happening. A lot of coveted parking spaces being taken up by film and TV production trucks and crews and so forth. No, there's there's definitely some uh, folks that I'm still hearing from. Actually, one business right now that I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with, great people, uh, understanding. 
great to deal with, but uh, they have their challenges, and it's 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 in their view affecting not super negatively, but negatively uh, their traffic. Uh, and, and you're going to get that smaller productions, not so much. Um, but but the complaints do come. It tends to come when you have much larger productions, and when that initial engagement before any shooting happens or any closures or parking spaces get taken up, if you don't do a good job in engaging with the community, you're going to get a whole lot of a lot more complaints. But you know, we've got a great film and TV office. We we've had many great staff uh, overseeing it and engaging well ahead of time with whether it's BIAs or homeowners or businesses. And so that really mitigates the issues. It, it, it certainly limits the amount of complaints that come to my office, that's for sure. But it, but, but it, it, it exists here and probably any other city. But again, we're well known, though, for you know really mitigating those issues. And in the industry, I would suggest we're probably one of the top cities in Canada uh, that that production people want to work in because we have so much um, ability to work with people and 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 infrequent complaints. Last thing, um, Chris Phillips, who's the project manager for that area of town, um, in the spec story today says that both parties, the city and the studio people, have the ability to walk away if key commitments or milestones are not met. We don't necessarily expect that, but if that were to happen. Is this land that the city now owns usable for something else? Is it easy to flip into something else if this were to somehow fall apart? Well, first of all, I'll say I, I keep in constant contact with the guys from Aeon, and I, I got to tell you, I don't expect that either. I mean, it, it it is moving along. It did slow down during COVID, but, you know, I would be very, very surprised, and I think a lot of our people from ECDAB and Chris and everyone else would be very surprised. They're, they're, they're giddy to go. Now, Absolutely. I mean, we have, again, 14 acres of coveted waterfront lands, and if council has to one day, for some strange reason, reinvent the wheel or, or come up with uh, some other uh, plan down there, then, then we will. And, and you know, there, there wouldn't be, I don't think, any shortage given the value of that waterfront property and the fact that it's consolidated and the fact, uh, Scott, that we have an approved plan down there, like a uh, heights and densities and what's commercial and what's what's residential and mixed use so so that really helps too so people know going in uh you know what what how to put a performer together but it it really is right now a hundred percent of the focus working with aeon uh getting this past the finish line and getting started on what is essentially a one or two decade endeavor to grow such as a, a hmm. large large tv film production studio Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Here's what Donald Trump's campaign manager had to say today about what is going on with the counting right now. We believe that uh, uh, President Trump will, again, win the race. And we think that by uh, as soon, possibly, uh, is the end of tomorrow on Friday, it will be clear to the American public that President Trump and Vice President Pence will serve another four years in the White House. That clip was uh, from ABC News. We will be waiting for a while, though. It seems want to bring in Josh Pasek, who's the Associate Professor of Communications and Media, Center for the P- for Political Studies, Core Faculty, Michigan Institute for Data Science at the University of Michigan. Uh, Josh, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
this um this we are going to be waiting for a while, aren't we? I mean, we're this is not going to be very clear, even if it seems clearer. It's not going to be clear anytime soon. Well, it's possible we will have a network call reasonably soon, pending you know the fact that there just aren't that many votes in the states that are still vote that are still counting. Um, but whether that network call is something that's accepted by a majority of the American public, I think remains to be seen, especially given that the Trump campaign is already laid out a series of legal challenges across the country um, to try to challenge votes that they don't think should be counted. Among all the other circumstances that are going on, and look, we could talk about this. Networks have been spending thousands of hours on this. We're, we're certainly not, not going to be doing that. But the, one of the questions that we're hearing a lot up here is why states each have their own rules, which seems to complicate things, rather than a single national election plan, which you would think would make this far smoother. Why is that? Uh, so I think there are a couple of sets of reasons. One is the, the unique history of the United States, right? If you look at the country, it is indeed a pact of states um, deciding to create a federal government, but the states were sort of in charge of whatever the federal government wasn't. Um, another piece of that is actually that there are a few advantages um, to having states manage it, and in particular local areas manage it, in that all these claims of widespread fraud, it's very hard to create fraud with a radically different system in every state and a unique way of managing it at the local levels. There are... Um there were, there have been many, many, many stores in big cities that have boarded up in anticipation of this election. Thankfully, to this point, we've not seen much in the way of protests or I haven't heard of much in the way of violence, if anything. But if you were a store owner who had boarded up your windows anticipating there could be problems, would you take the wood down yet? Uh, I'd wait a little bit longer for sure. I mean, I think uh, one thing that's been good is that uh, a lot of U.S. media has not given too much play to uh, Trump's election night speech in particular, where he tried to declare victory, um, and even before many of the votes were counted and when he wasn't even leading in a lot of places. Uh, that, I think, helped calm the tensions down a little bit, but tensions are pretty high here, um, and we'll see what happens as we go forward. Um, but yeah, if I were a store owner, I'd wait and see how the reaction to the eventual result plays out. This thing, though, it, it, what is so obvious from this? And there are many things, many lessons, many points we can take from what we've seen so far. But I, one of the things that really stands out, and I think to everybody, is just the deep divisions. And we can talk about racial divisions or other divisions. But when you look at the electoral map, the division between urban and rural is so stark in the country right now. How has that happened? How have we got to the point? How have you guys got to the point where it is? it seems like if it's rural, it's red. If it's urban, it's blue. So we've seen over a while, actually, a, a an increasing alignment of a series of different cleavages in American life onto the party divide. Um, and so it used to be that you know, race divided the parties, but wasn't perfectly aligned with the party divisions. Um, that religiosity divided the parties, but it wasn't perfectly aligned. And a lot of these things have come into lockstep over time. Um, and what that's meant is that these divisions are getting reinforced up and down, um, 
you know, up and down people's identities. And also that when you look at different places, people are increasingly living in places where they're surrounded by other people who are similar to them on at least enough fronts that they're almost certainly the same party. And that further reinforces things and serves to further polarize things because it makes the other side, not your neighbors, but people who live in that other town over there. Um, And that's actually a very dangerous force. Well, I mean, it's a a us and them divide, which, as you say, becomes very dangerous. But I think it also, does it not speak in some ways to the message that the two parties are presenting that is uh, clearly people in rural America are not seeing things broadly anyway in the Democratic platform that they're comfortable with. And clearly people in the cities are not seeing things in the Republican Party platform that appeals or sits well with them. And there doesn't seem to be much effort unless I'm missing something, there doesn't seem to be much effort in those parties to try and bridge that gap. They seem to be digging in more with their core. I, I mean, I think, I, I think there is a bit, of a, a bit of a partisan difference in the extent to which the parties are trying to bridge that gap. I think, by and large, Republicans mostly aren't trying at the moment. They were, um, but seem to almost cease under, in the era of Trumpism, um, where Democrats keep saying that they're trying to do it, but clearly are putting out the wrong messaging um, to actually attract many rural voters. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is that we have these divides layered on together, and so you have you know, rural voters in the United States who are much more religious, right, looking at cities that are much less religious. You've got rural voters who are much more white, looking at cities that are much more multi-ethnic. And those kinds of, you know, those kinds of divides layer onto each other and I think make it harder. I was reading something from the, uh, from some media outlet in Oregon. I wish I could remember which one it was, but um, there was voters in, I guess they had a, uh, a, an extra vote on the ballot or something. Voters in two counties there voted to, now it's not going to happen, but they voted to move the state's borders so that their more conservative rural area could amalgamate with Idaho and uh, one, one of the quotes from one of the people was, populated urban areas are controlling the mass of everybody. I think that's probably a view that is held by many people in the red areas. I think a lot of people in the blue areas are saying, you know, popular vote should count and these people in these hardly populated states shouldn't be deciding who becomes president. These are, it just goes to the divides and I, I'm just not sure how you ever overcome that now. I mean, it's it's almost certainly possible, but it requires some pretty deep structural reform to the way that um, American politics is administered. Um, and it's unclear, you know, given that we're clearly going to be in an era of divided government for some time going forward, that those kinds of reforms are going to happen in at least the short term. Um, and so this unfortunately may get worse before it gets better. So we're going to have, there's no ties. Well, there could be, I suppose. Um, I don't think it's ever happened before. And it would, I think it would mean Nancy Pelosi would be president, which (laughs) might make a few people in the red states lose their minds, but um, there's no ties in presidential politics. So somebody is going to be declared president. What happens with the other side? What is the response then? Is it simply anger? Because there will be anger. Is it simply going to be anger or is it going to be more than that? We don't know at this point, um, and that is, I mean, that is part of the concern. There's a groundwork being set up in practice in a variety of respects, 
um, sometimes on purpose and sometimes via other means, um, to make it seem as if either candidate is not legitimate to the other side, right? So for Democrats, they're looking at the fact um, that Biden is well ahead in the popular vote already um, with more than, you know, three million additional votes beyond Donald Trump's and likely to get a bunch more as California and and other absentee ballots elsewhere continue to come in. Um, And they're going to look at if Trump wins, who won a minority of voters in the country, um, winning for the second time. If Biden wins, a bunch of Trump voters have already been told that this is because of fraud and that the only way that Trump could lose is if there was some level of fraud. And so they're not going to believe um, that Biden's election was legitimate. Stack that on to the fact um, that you know during the Obama era, we saw um, Mitch McConnell lead the Senate in saying that essentially nothing was going to happen that was a Democratic priority or that was a Democratic justice, um, you know, with a Republican Senate, um, we're going to be in sort of a functional stalemate in the legislature and also a delegitimized presidency. And that's a very dangerous situation. Josh Pasek from the University of Michigan. Love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you. Let us continue the conversation, what it means to us here in Canada. Dr. Kim Spears is an assistant teaching professor and engagement and communications facilitator at the University of Victoria. She joins us now. Dr. Spears, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So as we sit and wait to find out what actually happens, um, what is the effect going to be on Canada? Is this mostly an emotional thing? Because we know that many Canadians don't like Donald Trump. Is this mostly an emotional thing that Canadians are going to be affected by this one way or the other, or is there more to it and more tangible results and more tangible things that can affect us? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. With it. I, I think certainly it is an emotional feeling. Um, I feel like I haven't really slept the last couple of nights. <laughs> I'm on and off and then I'll go, you know, wake up at three in the morning and check my iPad to see the results and so forth. So I think, you know, it's, emotional, uh, you know, we're feeling anxiety and so forth. But I, I think um, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau many years ago um, equated um, the U.S.-Canada relationship to the elephant and the mouse. And I think for a good reason. I think uh, Canada were very influenced by uh, many things that uh, happen in the United States. And I think, um, you know, just I, I grew up in uh um, just north of Toronto, and I think you know. I just remember you know the influence of the mass media. We watched so many shows, including I remember CHCH from Hamilton, but also a lot of the TV shows from Buffalo. And you know, given that eighty percent of Canadians, um, you know, I think you know live within a hundred miles of the U.S. border, we're we're greatly influenced by mass media. Mm. And I think a lot of us have family and friends. Um, a lot of folks vacation in the U.S. You know, there's lots of snowbirds um, that go down and live, you know, a chunk of time in the States. Um, and especially, um, again, you know, growing up around where um, you are, I remember, you know, shop, you know, cross-border shopping was um, a, a treat um, to go on and so forth. But I think, you know, even with the economy, um, you know, if there's something that, um, you know, if there's um, 
tariffs or duties um, that um, the U.S. applies, it you know, it can certainly affect um, you know the industries that are targeted in in you know very serious ways. So um, I think you know a lot of us are feeling rather emotional um, and uh, anxious with the results, but I, I, I think you know the impact is deeper. And even if I can say as well, just you know that cultural. Um, and social impact um, as well in terms of, um, you know, the really divisive type of politics that we've seen in the last uh, four years as well. I did not know that when we started in this, we might be launching into a talk about Commander Tom and Davy and Goliath on <laughs> Buffalo News Channels. Um, however, there you go. Are you um, around the same age, but I won't see what that age is. <laughs> well, and, and having grown up in the Southern Ontario area, yes, we've all, gee, Davey. Uh, yeah, we all know that one very well. A um, couple, couple things uh, that I want to throw, one on each side, because I've, look, I've been looking at all these different things, and there's all these pros and cons to whomever wins, um, besides the social or the emotional side. One of them is oil, and Joe Biden, if he wins, has made it very clear he's against pipelines, wants to move to other forms of energy, is going to restrict American oil production. This theoretically could open a door to Canada. Certainly we know that out in Alberta, they're desperate for some good news with something with oil. This could open the door to Canada having a benefit from this. Question is, are we in a position to take advantage because our government is trying to slam down a little bit on the oil side of things? Is this something that could benefit us? Yeah, I, I think so. So, oh gosh, like it's, Right now, <laughs> who knows, right? But right now, it looks like Biden um, may win, and who yes. knows what's going to happen with the courts and so forth. But with Biden, like he's threatened to cancel um, um, the pipeline that is supposed to go, yeah, from the um, Alberta oil sands down to the Gulf Coast. So, um, I, I mean, the whole pipelines debate. Um, I mean, it's. As you can imagine, out here in BC, it's extremely po political, extremely divisive. And then you know, Alberta and BC have been going at it in term of terms of wine wars <laughs> and so forth. So, um, I think whatever happens there, it's going to create some division. Um, and I, I think what it could create as well as perhaps more division between, uh, I'll say, Alberta and B.C. as well, just depending mm -hmm. on what happens there. And Quebec and other parts of the country, for sure, absolutely. The flip yep. side, so there, there's a, there's an opportunity that perhaps Biden helps us. The, the flip, and there are lots of these other ones, but there are suggestions reading, again, experts saying, <clears throat> excuse me, that... Uh, Biden winning could have an effect on the stock market, could drive it down because of promises of raising corporate taxes and all kinds of other things. Most or at least many Canadians invest in RSPs or directly in the stock market. It's been very good under Trump, the way the stock market has gone for your retirement plans. Yeah. If people see their own money, their own retirement plans take a hit, does the emotional happiness of maybe having Biden in the office override the fact that now you look at your own numbers and you say, oh, now I'm not so sure. Where, where does, how do we balance our financial interests, our personal interests with what we think we would like to happen? Um, that's another great point, Scott. And, and I think, you know, and maybe this is the influence more of the pandemic where I think um, we've seen a bit more of a move to 
thinking about others and taking care of others and more of the collective rather than that individualist perspective. And so, um, so, uh, you know, I, I've, I've heard that argument before and some that, you know, would say if they were down in the States, they would support Trump. And exactly for that reason, because, you know, it's done well for their pocketbooks and bank accounts. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, is money the most <laughs> important thing? Um, I, I think, I think, or, and I would say how much money. And I think, you know, is, like they're a greater cause in terms of taking care of each other rather than making, I don't know, a thousand more dollars or something when one is already really comfortable. Um, but I know that there's also quite a few people on the edge of retirement who are very concerned just about, um, you know, what their retirement savings are going to look like and so forth. But um I, I think it's kind of that push and pull between, yep. you know, yep. that individualist versus collective. And I think all of us are like, all of us naturally feel that. But I think just with the influence of the pandemic, I've, I've seen, at least in Canada, a little bit more shift to that more collective um, sense of community, even though like... <laughs> I know there's so many oxymorons. There's Even so though- many things. Yeah, it's it's so co- we got to run. Unfortunately, it's so complicated. I know what Davy and Goliath would say about that one. I know what their answer would be. What but would it be? <laughs> well, you know, help other people and be kind and all the rest of the thing. And he would he would say it really happily with you know. And yeah, it would be it would be very Commander Thomas. We Commander Tom. Maybe we'll get Tom Joel's on the show one of these days and see what he has to say. Uh, Doctor <laughs> Kim Spears from the University of Victoria. Love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Oh, thanks, Scott. You made my day. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The list of greats on the Billboard charts, on especially on the R&B charts, it is a who's who of R&B when you start going through the who's who. 13 number one hits, Michael Jackson, also 13 Marvin Gaye. That's how many they had. The Temptations had 15. Janet Jackson had 16, James Brown, hardest working man in show business, 17, Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin were tied with 20 number one hits on the Billboard R&B charts. They were leading until this week when they have now been usurped by Drake. Yes, Drake. There you go. Uh, that song, Laugh Now, Cry Later, is his 21st number one hit on the R&B Billboard charts. Um, that, I believe, may be the first time I've heard that song, uh, against my wishes, by the way, <laughs> but um, uh, because it kind of sounds to me like every other Drake song. I, I, just, I need someone to explain this to me because I just, I truly don't get it. Let me bring in one of our favorite people, Eric Alper, who's a publicist, a music commentator, and... My favorite part, a shameless idealist. Eric, thank you so much for doing this today. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I'm always happy to be here and argue with you since uh, it's quite known that you also don't like puppies and lollipops. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay with puppies and I quite enjoy most lollipops. Oh, okay. I okay, just, then we're good. I, I just, I don't get the Drake thing. Help me out here on it because to me, as I say, every Drake song sounds like every other Drake song. Yeah, so I think what we have to just 
say right off the top is that Drake's music really isn't for us, except for maybe one or two songs like Hotline Bling, which completely transforms R&B music and hip-hop music and and for lack of a better term, that the music industry tends not to use anymore, urban radio music. And, you know, back when we were growing up, and I think a lot of listeners would understand this, when there was a hit in America, we knew about it here in Canada. When Aretha Franklin had a number one song like Think or Respect or I Never Loved the Man the Way That I Loved You, we all knew. We know five James Brown songs at the least. You know, when Michael Jackson's Thriller came out, everybody had a copy of the record. Well, that was because we were all listening and watching and reading probably the exact same five things that everybody else was. We were reading Rolling Stone magazine, we'd be watching Much Music or MTV, and then maybe Friday night videos, uh, Friday night at midnight on NBC. So because of the fact that everybody is now listening to their own music within their own community on their own different social media platforms. If you're um, on Facebook all the time and never on Instagram, well, there are people on Instagram with 65 million followers that you have no idea who they are. And those are the kind of people that are making hits. And I think that's where Drake kind of lines in to, you don't have to feel bad that, you know, whenever I tweet about stuff like this, people will say, well, I can't even name one Drake song. And it's like, OK, I understand why. But it doesn't mean that the general population hasn't decided like the U.S. election. And they've decided that every single time Drake puts out a song, it's going to reach the top of the charts. And that's exactly absolutely what's happened so far. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's no look, there's no argument. I'm not I'm not pretending that the numbers aren't there. I, I mean, clearly he has a massive audience. Uh, as I say, I, I just, I, I struggle to, uh, and I'm, I, I look, Eric, I have a pretty wide musical eclectic taste. I will, I will listen to almost anything. For sure. Is it, no, I is don't. it, is it hard? Is it easier today to get a number one hit because of streaming and other things, or is it just the same? It's just different. No, it, it's a lot harder because when you're releasing a song, you're not even releasing a song to your own city or province or state or country, your competition is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, for the same eyes and ears as everybody else that's out there. The reason why Drake has been managed to be so successful, there's a couple of reasons. A lot of his songs have been a lot more down-tempo, a lot more sad than a lot of the, the club bangers that are out there. In fact, in the beats per minute um, of an average Drake song, it kind of fits neatly in with a group like Radiohead. It's just that Radiohead sometimes has really fast, upbeat rock songs. Drake doesn't. The fact that Drake also comes from Canada gives him a slight advantage right now because he's using Caribbean sounds, he's using dancehall, he even flirts with Afrobeat music. So he's got a worldwide audience in mind. He's a trendsetter that he knows exactly who is breaking this week on certain social media platforms and allowing them to do the verse or the chorus of a song that comes out next week. The, the quickness of his music right now to be released is that Drake could right now write and release and record, uh, write and record and release a song on Friday and get it out to everybody on Saturday morning if he wanted to. So he's got the ability to look at the trends going on and kind of predict what people are going to like. And, uh, and right now he's been more right than wrong. All right, let me, uh, we only have a few minutes. I want to get to another thing. Uh, speaking of musicians who have done very well for themselves, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction is this weekend. 
the people going in this year, Depeche Mode, the Doobie Brothers, Nine Inch Nails, the Notorious B.I.G., T-Rex, and Whitney Houston. Now, we can debate all day long about whether the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is appropriately named because it's not really about rock and roll per se. It's the music. It's yeah. the popular music Hall of Fame. But that being the case, how in the world of all of these groups that are going in and all earning their way in fair and square for sure, how is Whitney Houston already not in there? Um, uh, why is she not in there? Well, um, I, I, I think partly because certain people love that our voters love to push certain artists at certain periods of time. It could coincide with a documentary or a new greatest hits album. It's kind of like being on the Hollywood Walk of Fame sometimes where you want to kind of coincide with, with an uptick of your career. I think the time was right specifically for Winnie Houston more than ever before because of artists like Drake and The Weeknd and Alicia Cara um, and, and Ariana Grande dominating the pop charts, all looking to Winnie Houston as the woman and as the musician and singer that, that they truly loved growing up. So she's got the influence right now. She, um, her influence is felt all over the pop chart. And uh, I totally agree that she should absolutely be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because she grew up with gospel, she grew up with R&B, and, and she grew up with country music. And without those three, well, you just don't have rock and roll to begin with. And I'm going to throw one more at you, the all-time snub right now. So, okay, Whitney Houston is finally going in. And I'm not necessarily the world's biggest Whitney Houston fan, but you can't deny the impact she's had on music and how successful she's been. How in all that is pure and holy is Tina Turner not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? They have to correct that. And you know what? I'll throw another name at you. How in the world are the Go-Go's not in there, considering just what a complete dominance and changing of the music industry that, that they had? with girl groups and, and women who be able to play their own instruments and a massive documentary with Gina Valentine, the basis of the group writing a best-selling uh, autobiography. They have to get in next year. I think what we're going to see thanks to COVID is I think we're going to see double, if not triple the amount of inductees, not only to the Rockmore Hall of Fame, but also the Juno Hall of Fame. And right here at home in Toronto for the Canadian Music Songwriter Hall of Fame as well. I think it's time that people like this who have the power start um, start writing some wrongs of the, of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s music before it gets too late. Well, at least they got Rush in a while ago before Neil Peart passed away. That took a while, but at least that happened. Eric Alper, always love having you on. I wish we had more time, but thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. Guess what song is number one on the charts right now? This day, this moment, early November. Guess what song is number one? Mariah Carey's Christmas song. Ow! Are you kidding? We're not even at Remembrance Day yet, and all I want for Christmas is already number one on the streaming services. There is something deeply wrong with that. What the heck? Let me bring in Tyler Schwartz. He is the guy behind Retro Festive, which is a store, usually has a storefront this year going online only, but a Christmas supply. Tyler, what do you call your store? A Christmas everything store, right? Is that that what we're going to call it? We focus on Christmas and pop culture. It is. uh, I've been on your website many times, especially hunting down those things for Christmas vacation artifacts, which uh, (laughs) still remains the best Christmas movie of all time. Uh, what is the deal with this song that, that we are already locked into it at number one on November the 5th? Well, I can only guess it's got something to do with people looking for some comfort and nostalgia and some escapism, really. I mean, what else do we have to do during a pandemic than to look forward to Christmas? 
And I love that. I'm great with that. Even I'm usually the guy who says December 1st is the time when December is allowed. This year, I'm with you. It's like, you know what? We need something. But this song, I mean, I could do, Tyler, I could do with a Christmas season in which I don't hear this one, Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time, and I love Paul McCartney, or Wham's Last Christmas, or (laughs) the worst of all, The Christmas Shoes. Um, wow, if I don't are, hear uh, those ones, no, no I am told me that, that you, uh, you had green fur and like to steal Christmas. <laughs> I've Jeez. no play, play me anything <laughs> else, but those four, well, the five, those five, the, the most overplayed songs. Just, and, well, and already, I have to agree with you about the Christmas shoes song, but I have to disagree <laughs> with you about, uh, the Mariah Carey song. Uh, it's, it's actually one of my personal favorites and All I know right. <laughs> that might change your opinion of me, but. I've, I've I've loved it since the day it came out. I um yeah the the Christmas shoes one. I'm sorry, I'm still not sure who decided they wanted to write a song about their mother dying at Christmas yeah. and shopping for footwear. Uh, however, be that as it may, um he, here's the here's the challenge I guess I have with a lot of the Christmas music, and I love it. I, I I'm not a Grinch. I really love it. But for some reason, it seems as though Tyler, every artist now has decided they have to put out a Christmas album. And there's only so many Christmas songs, so we get versions that are oversung, are mangled, are worn out, or are hallmarked, I call it, which is basically Christmas to within an inch of its life. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that. That you're, you're, you're right on that because they all want that evergreen hit. They all want that, uh, you know, uh, the that Mariah Carey flowing, right? But uh, you know, with, about Mariah Carey, you know. Yes, a lot of people have maybe mangled that song through the years, but she certainly didn't. And I, I give her all the credit. You know, she came up with probably what is, you know, one of the last uh, original kind of Christmas tunes that, that we all sing along to and remember. I mean, there's not been too many since her to, that have, have really become a, a staple in the Christmas canon. And it, well, it won't be unique for all that long because apparently Jennifer Hudson and Ariana Grande and others are doing their own versions now. They all want to tap into the Mariah Carey, as you say, money train here uh, yeah. and get that one out there, which which means we're going to hear even more of it. I'm, guess, I'm guessing yeah, now you I, get not just one version. <laughs> I suppose, you know, for, for me, I, I, I agree with you in that sense, but I'm not into the knockoffs or, or the, the, you know, the tribute versions, but I, I do uh, appreciate the, the original with the, the glockenspiel and the church times and all that kind of stuff. You know, it just, I mean, if you don't feel like celebrating Christmas, you sure do once you hear that song or unless, you know, you're you. Who, uh, yeah, well, oh, that's cool. I, I, maybe I just don't like glockenspiel in my pop music. No, I'm not sure. I'll have to figure that one out. But, but again, with all the albums coming out, I, I'm not sure, although it's coming, I'm not sure we need Megan Trainer's interpretation of the holiday <laughs> classics or Shaggy's or the Goo Goo Dolls who are yeah. coming out with one this year. Well, um, I, I guess it just speaks to the fact of how hard it is to come up with a Christmas classic. You know, I, I mean, I think a lot of people have tried and, and not a lot of it has really stuck. Um, and, and I think that goes to show, I, I think a lot of people maybe don't give Mariah um, credit for, for her true genius, which is her songwriting ability. I mean, most of her songs, her hit songs were written by her. And, um, no, she is a musician. She is a musician. There's absolutely no question about it. Whether you love Mariah Carey, don't like Mariah Carey, don't like the way she interprets songs. She is absolutely an incredibly talented musician. There's no getting around that. Yeah. You can't discount that. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, is she milking the thing to death? Probably. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, who can blame her? Really? Who can blame her? All right, Tyler. Now I know you're going to have a slightly different opinion for most because you do run a Christmas, not entirely Christmas, but a business that, that does have Christmas yeah. involvement. Yeah. But typically, take out COVID for a second. Typically, when is the acceptable time to begin celebrating or putting Christmas music on or Christmas decorations on, whether it's your home or a store? What is the Tyler endorsed time frame on the calendar that it's okay? Well, you know, 10, ten years ago, I would have said Black Friday kind of weekend at the end of November. Um, recently, I've kind of, you know, said, okay, anytime after Remembrance Day. Um, but this year, I kind of think, you know what? God bless you. Go for it now. Um, and I'm probably going to put up my tree this weekend. I know a lot I of would, have already. Yeah, and, and again, this is an unusual year. I, I do think, seriously, I do think that the after remembrance day is an appropriate thing. I think it, you know, that that's such an important day. I think it gets lost if we start doing it early, but I, I, this year I get it. And I'm, I'm, you know, we can all be a little bit different this year. Yeah. You know, about remembrance day, I, I, I think I disagree with, with the people who, who have emailed me over the years and say, how, how dare you open your Christmas store before remembrance day? I'm like, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with that because it is a, a free country. And, and I, I think that's, and what it's a business. For. It's, it's different. It's, it's a business, business, right? But I do think in general, I mean, I think it becomes less special the longer you celebrate it, right? So um, it's a special time of year, and I think if you celebrate it all year round, then it's not going to be that special. You, I see, you just nailed it, and and, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That you drag this thing out, you go into stores who have their Christmas stuff up in July, and it becomes silly. You, you know, you you do it a little, you, you reduce the time. I think people like it more. But anyway, we're we are in the Mariah Carey zone right now. Number one already, November the fifth. Uh, now that said. As I mentioned a moment ago, Tyler's business is a business. People are doing Christmas shopping or looking for stuff. Um, retrospective or retrofestive, pardon me. I can't yeah, get the name of your company right. Retrofestive. And, and people are, they're shopping like nuts. Uh, our sales are, you know, twice or triple what they usually are this time of year. And I believe it's a good it. thing because, you know, people are expecting maybe shipping to slow down closer to Christmas. So it's a good thing to start early. It is a very, very fun website. I have been on it many, many times. People should go check it out. To give us the website address one more time. Retrofestive.ca. Retrofestive.ca. Even if you're not, well, buy something, but go check it out because you will find yeah. something on there that if nothing else will make you chuckle at a few of the things that are there. Yeah, Tyler, really appreciate, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing yeah, this. No problem. Thanks for talking to me. Tyler Schwartz from retrofestive.ca. It is a very, very fun website. You should go check it out. Let us take a break. Got the news coming up and we're going to come back and talk about Ontario's budget, what we expect. We'll do that next. Stay with us. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson and thanks for listening.